0: Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything foreign policy has to offer. Thanks for listening to this Institute of Art and Ideas podcast, bringing you philosophy for our times. Here at the IAI, we're committed to taking philosophy out of dusty books and lecture halls and into the heart of public life. If you enjoy this debate and want to carry on the discussion or watch over a thousand more debates and talks on all the latest issues in philosophy, science, politics and arts, visit IAI.tv. Remember to subscribe and review on iTunes. In this episode, we're bringing you Owen Jones, author of The Establishment. He makes the case for an alternative to despair and a new era for politics. Are we ready for the politics of hope?
1: Hello. Hi. Hello. Um, I never wanted to be a writer, which is very unfortunate, because that's my job. I hate writing, it's so boring. And the whole point of what I try to do in everything, whether it be this or going on telly or, you know, Snapchat, is to try and communicate ideas, but above all else to give a platform to ideas, people and causes that otherwise ignored or demonised or ever out of existence. Not just to draw attention to the injustices that I think don't just scar our society, but... That define our society in lots of fundamental ways but not in a kind of let's all sit around and stroking our tins and you know pat ourselves on the back and go home and you know you can go home obviously you can't go home <laughs> but i'm saying above all else that we do something about these injustices that we don't accept them is uh, inevitable and when, when i talk about the politics of hope it, it kind of sounds a bit like a platitude who doesn't believe in hope it sounds like motherhood and apple pie but what i mean by it is this those who defend the way things are, those who defend injustice, they want us to believe that injustice is a bit like the weather. That you can complain about it raining, but there's nothing you can do about it. It's just the way the world is. Um, and I think, for me, the politics of hope, all it means is all injustice is temporary, it's transient, and it can be overcome with enough determination, enough resilience, uh, and enough... Uh, you know, kind of courage. And that is the history of this country and the history of so many other countries. And the reason this is so important is that there is huge discontent at the moment and it is sweeping the Western world. Discontent that was amplified, of course, by the financial crash and the consequences that millions of people have had to endure in what has been now almost a lost decade. And you see this discontent going in one of two different directions either in a direction I would describe as a politics based on on, on hope, on building societies running the interests of the majority, of holding the powerful who dominate our societies to account. On the other hand, a politics based on despair and fear. And that politics of fear is based on blaming anybody but the powerful, people's neighbours, the people at the bottom of society, immigrants, Muslims, unemployed people, you name it. And you can see that happening everywhere across the Western world. In the United States, on the one hand, you've got Bernie Sanders. who's this unlikely icon of the politics of hope. He's a septuagenarian Jewish self-described socialist senator from Vermont. And, and, and he talks about an America that currently run in the interests of the 1% and how it should be built in the interests of the majority. A, uh, a society not run in the interests of Wall Street, but of Main Street instead. Uh, and, and he's captured, you know, he's a septuagenarian, but it's the young who've been particularly inspired. Young people who face often a worse lot in life than their parents. And, you know, 85% in some primaries of young people, people under 30... I'm 31 now. Still young? Anyway, under 30, they have have, uh, have voted for Bernie Sanders. On the other hand, you've got the increasingly quasi-fascist clown Donald Trump. And the thing is, with Donald Trump, is he promotes, say, politics based on scapegoating immigrants... And uh, particularly Mexicans and Muslims, for all the many ills that scar American uh, society. And the thing is, you know, it's easy to attack people who support Donald Trump. But in many cases, there are Americans who are hurting badly because wages for American workers has been, for millions of Americans, have been flatlining or even falling for many, many years. Indeed, since the late 1970s. And we've seen it in Britain as well. We've seen... Uh, whatever you think of Scotland the rise of the Scottish National Party the independence referendum and the and the consequences of that I don't think it was a kind of you know brave heart blood and soil nationalism I think in lots of ways it was a rejection uh, however what people whatever people think about the rights or wrongs of what the of what it actually represents but a rejection of a very unjust society we've seen the rise of uh, to a degree of the greens and of course we've seen the the unexpected Corbyn phenomenon uh, which we seen the fact he become uh, leaves the Labour Party is slightly less likely than an asteroid hitting Earth. On the other hand, you've got the rise of, of UKIP, a party, an anti-establishment party <laughs> led by that rare breed of British politician, a privately educated ex-city broker. Not many of them, with uh, bankrolled by multi-millionaire ex-Tory donors, uh, with policies really original policies, privatising the NHS, cutting taxes on the rich, repealing workers' rights, sticking it to the man. So you've got that politics of fear, and in France you see it as well, the rise of the National Front, an anti-immigrant, anti-Muslim party blaming those people for all the ills of French society, and they're leading in many opinion polls. On the other hand, in Spain, you've got the rise of a new party founded just two years ago called Podemos, which are rejecting the cuts imposed on a society in which half of all young people are out of work. On the other hand, in Scandinavia, across Scandinavia, you've seen anti-immigrant parties. On the other hand, in Greece, you saw the rise of Syriza and so on and so forth. And the point is this, that discontent isn't going anywhere. You know, it's a mugs game to predict another economic crisis, though it's certainly looking often pretty turbulent out there and we're overdue another crash. But We haven't recovered from the last crisis. And already that discontent discontent has not diminished, it's only increased. And it's going in those two different directions. And my view is, my fear is, particularly if there's another crash, that those people peddling the politics of fear are ready and prepared and are circling, if you like, already exploiting that resentment. We've just seen in Austria, in Austria, a far-right candidate was beaten. And it's easy to rejoice at that but nearly half the population voted for a far-right candidate to be the president of that party. A dangerous, frightening wake-up call. And the the reality was the traditional two main parties of Austria collapsed. They didn't make it into the final round. It was a Green Independent who defeated the far-right candidate instead. And that, I'm afraid, in my view, is a harbinger of what is to come. That politics of fear is already very entrenched and very ready. So we have a responsibility, no pressure, but we have a responsibility that if we if we don't get it right, they will fill what is a vacuum waiting to be filled. And the reason there's this politics, I mean if we look at here in Britain, it's some of the injustices that we've suffered as a country in the last few years. The longest in wages since Queen Victoria sat on the throne of this country where Uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of workers have been driven into low wages and poverty, disproportionately women, where most people in poverty in this country are in work and they get up in the morning and they earn their poverty day after day. (coughs) Where we have booming industries like food banks. This is one of the richest countries that has ever existed and there are people who are unable to satisfy the most basic human need of all other than breathing and drinking water to eat. 300,000 of them kids. The sixth biggest economy on the face of the earth. At the same time, we've got this uh, huge growing housing crisis. Five million people languishing on social housing waiting lists, deprived of that basic right, that basic need, to have a decent, affordable home for them and for their families as well. We're with home ownership in collapse for a younger generation, the only alternative being a private rented sector with rip-off rents and a lack of security. Where you can be kicked out, as some will probably know, with arbitrary notice. How do you set down roots and have a family in such circumstances? And, you know, I live in London. I'm a plastic northern. I've sold out my northern roots. Some says get heckled for that point in the north. But the, the point is that I love London. I definitely get heckled for that. But I love London. But it's this booming, wealthy city where, you know, you get new-build properties in the centre snapped up by oligarchs and left vacant, where, you know, I cycle past these buildings, these grand new luxury flats and all the windows are dark because nobody lives there, whilst one in four young people grow up in an overcrowded home. And we know the consequences of overcrowding on a young person. The damage to their education, their, their health, their well-being, far more likely to suffer everything from asthma to depression. Not just scarring them but also scarring our society because of that, lack, that that untapped potential that is damaged because of this completely arbitrary housing crisis. Where the next generation, who should expect as of a right that their lot in life will be better than their parents, not only can they not get affordable homes, they're punished for aspiring to a better education to improve themselves and society as a whole. One of the first things this government did was to scrap the educational maintenance allowance—a government of millionaires slamming the door in the face of young, aspirational working-class people—where, uh, if you want to go to a university education, you're now saddled, saddled with huge amounts of debt, put, driving down your living standards uh, for many, many years uh, to come. Where young people often, you know, get these text messages. I mean, these young people—they get text messages at six o'clock in the morning telling them if they have any hours that day and it's like a return to a bygone era where dock is marched to the yard and they they'd stick their hands up hoping to get work often to go home disappointed. How do you settle down and have kids again in that situation with security? They don't have pensions, they don't have paid sick leave, forget about paid maternity leave. And this is a society where all too often it's one rule for those at the top and one rule for everybody else. Now I don't suppose Many of you are paying 3% tax a year, unless I've grossly misjudged my audience, <laughs> because you're not a global, <laughs> multinational uh, corporation. I doubt as well, again, unless I'm misjudging you, have secret talks with the George Osborne, uh, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, in order to, uh, de- to come up with arrangements to as your tax situation. But this is situ- the sense of wonder for, for someone, wonderful for everybody else. Compare, for example, to a local coffee shop or a local bookshop. Now, if you're a small business and you get your tax return a bit wrong, then HMRC will come knocking your door pretty fonte. You can't charge yourself for using your own logo and offset it against tax. You can't route your sales through other countries with lower taxes. You can't offload uh, losses from foreign entities onto, your, bal- onto, your, onto your, you know, your balance sheet in this country to make it look like you're not making any money so you don't have to pay any tax. You just have to pay your tax. But with these global corporations, it's completely different. And, you know, just an example, we have these large accountancy firms who are up to their neck with tax avoidance. They're seconded to government. They help draw the tax laws. Then they tell their clients how to get around the very laws they themselves have helped to design in the first place. Now, can you imagine benefit claimants being seconded to the Department of Work and Pensions to draw legislation on Social Security, let alone benefit fraudsters? But that... That is what we have with tax avoidance. And I often make this comparison between benefit fraud and tax avoidance. And there's a very obvious retort, which is, hang on a minute, benefit fraud, which is worth 1.2 billion compared to tax avoidance, 25 billion plus, who knows? I made that, you make that comparison, you can say, well, actually, benefit fraud is illegal, tax avoidance isn't. But that is the point, because the law exists all too often to crack down on the misdemeanors of the poor And to allow or even encourage and facilitate the far more socially destructive behaviour of those at the top. Now, another example of that is if you compare, say, the banks. The banks plunged this country into economic disaster. And they became the most lavished benefit claimant in this country. With two key differences from other benefit claimants. Firstly, they got hundreds of billions of pounds worth of money, not a derisory amount. And secondly, all too few conditions attached to that state largesse. They carried on paying more bonuses to those people at the top of those banks than every single other country in the European Union put together. Where this government took the EU to court to try and stop them putting any limits on those bonuses. Where um, they didn't lend properly to many small businesses helping to choke off recovery from a disaster they'd caused. All that money, so little to in return. But compare that to others who received support from the state. Benefit claimants, the difference with them is their support is often derisory and pathetic, but their support has been made ever more conditional or just taken away altogether. And I'll give you one example. A 60-year-old man called Stephen Taylor from Manchester, near where I'm from. Now, this uh, 60-year-old man was unemployed, and as some of you may know, if you're 60 years old and you're out of work, it's very tough getting a job, but he was trying his best. Now, this 60-year-old man, Stephen Taylor, is an army veteran. And he was selling poppies for the Royal Legion, selling poppies for maimed and injured former comrades of his. And he was selling these poppies in a supermarket where he tried to get a job unsuccessfully. Now, he had his benefits stopped for four weeks on the basis his volunteering for the Royal Legion showed he wasn't trying hard enough to look for work. Compare and contrast. For those at the top, huge amounts of public money with little if nothing asked in return for those at the bottom of society, of the amounts of money, ever more conditional, often taken away altogether. That if you plunge this country into economic calamity, none of those people, not one arrested, then the state will come rushing to your rescue. If you're at the bottom of society, then you are expected to pull yourself up by your bootstraps, even if, to quote Barack Obama, you don't even have any boots. And do you know what that is? That's socialism for the rich and it's capitalism sink or swim, for everybody else. And that's the society in which we live. Now, you can talk about these injustices, and I can, because I'm supposed to be hopeful. No, we talk about the injustices, but the thing is, it will come, the hope. The hope always comes. have to do the bad bit first. Uh, Now we'll be all happy. But you look at this and think, firstly, why does this injustice, uh, why is it maintained? Partly, it's not because people are going, oh, no, I think society is running a brilliant way. I think it's really just and equal and fair. Not many people argue that, that's for sure. But people feel often resigned, as I spoke about at the beginning. I, I'll give you an example. The Panama Papers, I, I tweeted about this a few weeks ago when it happened. The Guardian and all the rest were writing about it. And, and I, I just said, you know, a rich elite avoiding tax on an industrial scale whilst preaching or the need for implementing cuts. And the response I got was not anger. It wasn't anger. It was, well, duh, what do you expect? Obviously, people would be more surprised if rich people didn't avoid tax. And that worried me. Because that cynicism helps prop up the way things are. People almost had factored it in, you know, they'd they'd accepted it as part of the reality. It rains on bank holidays, hopefully it won't, and the rich avoid tax on an industrial scale. That is just the way the world is. But another, which is sinister and pernicious, which is the cynical attempt to redirect, relentlessly, people's anger at the problems they face, their family faces, their community and their country faces, away from the people at the top, the powerful, to people's neighbours down the streets instead. And it's the politics of envy. And it sounds odd when I say the politics of envy. Because, you know, if I say the wealth of the richest 1,000 people has more than doubled in the last few years during one of the great economic crises in the history of our country, whilst at the same time uh, millions of people have struggled, maybe the rich can pay, afford to pay a bit more tax, they won't be out on the streets if they do, then the response you always get is the politics of envy. Because if you stand up for the bottom 70%, they call you a class warrior. If you stand up for the top 1%, they call you a moderate. But the reality is, it's the powerful all too often who promote the politics of envy. Low-paid workers, their wages too low because their bosses aren't paying them properly. Their in-work benefits being slashed by this government. And they're told, don't be angry with the boss, don't be angry with your government. Instead, envy the unemployed, scrounger down the road, living in a mansion made out of widescreen television sets. There's always widescreen TVs. Can't actually buy any other form of TV anymore, but I'll park that. Private sector workers, their their pensions have been decimated in the private sector. It's one of the great scandals of our time. But they're told, do not be angry with your boss, envy instead the, the public sector worker, the nurse, the teacher, why should they have a pension when you don't? Instead of saying you should have a pension, the idea is they should be confiscated in a race to the bottom. And if people can't get decent, affordable homes, because the government won't build them, or they can't get a secure job because they've been ripped from our economy. They're told, do not be angry with the powerful. Instead, envy the immigrant getting the job or the home that should be yours instead. And people are constantly told, don't be angry that you're being robbed. Be angry your less-deserving neighbour hasn't been robbed quite as much as you have. And it's the politics of divide and rule that when we're angry with each other, we're not actually angry with the people at the top who are responsible. Now... Yeah! Now... um, Trofane, um, there's children in here no, I'm um, including me no. um, I'm, not sure. I'm, I'm, f- I'm 15 now No, so what I want to talk about is communication in terms of the hope bit now because for me all too often it's about how we communicate and this is critical so this is me now just flage- self-flagellating about where I think I've gone wrong in terms of communicating what we actually do so one of the points is this in terms of how we talk to people <coughs> Most people don't think in terms of left or right, apart from sad politicos like me. They think in terms of issues to be addressed in a way that's convincing and coherent, told in a language they understand that resonates with their experiences. And sometimes the people who defend the way things are, are better at doing this than people like myself. And um, I use words sometimes which are jargon, which kind of people who are activists who call themselves as such will understand but others won't. So the government, the conservatives, what they'll do with the deficit of this country is they'll often compare it to a household budget. Now, that is actually economically illiterate, incidentally, unless, unless again, I've misjudged my audience, you've all got a central bank in your back garden printing money, which I presume you don't. Uh, but in any case, they do that because it connects with people's everyday experiences. That's the point of doing it. And uh, during the last general election, during the leaders' debates, the most commonly Googled phrase in Britain was, what is austerity, after five years of it? That's a word I've bandied around relentlessly, because it doesn't relate to people's everyday lives and experiences. It doesn't conjure up for lots of people the reality of what the government is doing. Now a really important point of this is about how in terms of communication there's a political linguist in the United States called George Lakoff and he argues the right often use stories, the left use facts and statistics but we're not robots, we're not machines, we're human beings. We think in terms of other human beings, of course we do. So an example of this is benefit fraud. Now, if I was, you know, to hypocritically now use statistics, I'm going to make my point with them. On average, people think benefit fraud is worth 27% of social security spending. According to the government's own figures, it's 0.7%. Now, that is not because people have been told on a daily basis it's 27%. They've just been subjected to a relentless, uh, non-stop diet of newspapers, of the press, of the, Media hunting down the most extreme and unrepresentative examples of benefit scroungers with lots of kids and widescreen television sets plastered on the front pages of the Daily Mail or the Sun or the Express or the Telegraph. We could go on. And what that does, obviously, is that people see it so much and then they're asked to come up with a figure and they just come up with, well, I don't know, 27% or more because that's just an average. Lots of people think it's far more than that. And they do that. They plaster on the front page this scrounger with 50 kids and a million wisely white-screen television sets. And then a smart ass like me goes, well, benefit falls only 0.7% of social security <coughs> spending. Of course, that doesn't work. We have to communicate in a way that comes back to stories. Now, before, I actually spoke about benefit sanctioning. But what I could have done is say in the last 18 months or so, about a million people have had their benefits sanctioned. But I think it was far more effective to talk about a 60-year-old man, that army veteran who had his benefits stopped. Instantly, that connects with people emotionally. And we've seen it during the whole refugee crisis. Now, I have huge respect for activists who fought for the rights of refugees. And, you know, I've just come back myself from Djibouti a, uh, in the Horn of Africa to a refugee camp where Yemenis have fled a conflict in which British bombs are being dropped by our good friends and allies, the Saudi dictatorship. And I interviewed little kids who drew pictures, this 11-year-old girl drew a picture of, 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 of planes dropping missiles with dead bodies. Not things you expect 11-year-olds to draw. But but refugee activists have been on, to be honest, hiding to nothing for a very long time. Public opinion has not always been that receptive. But what, at least for a moment, changed that? It was when that little kid, Kurdish (coughs) kid, was washed up on a beach. And why was that? Well, because most people are not psychopaths, obviously. And, you know, John Ronson, um, people might know, he wrote this this book called The, The Psychopath Test. I mean, he's a statistic hypocritically, but he argued only one in every hundred people are sociopaths. How many people are here? No, I'm joking. Um, most of us have a capacity for empathy for other people. The problem is when a group of people is stripped of its humanity, then you will accept, not you necessarily, but people often will accept or inflict any amount of cruelty on members of that group because they're not human beings like them. And that's obviously happened with refugees. Uh, often to an extreme degree, it's happened to benefit claimants, it's happened to Muslims, we could go through that list. And the only way of challenging it is to humanise people. And that's why we need to speak far more in the language of stories. That's how we connect with people. Avoiding words like austerity, you know, but instead talking about things which actually directly resonate and connect with people's everyday lives um, and experiences. It's free for the first month, and there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level. Now, another point, you know, talk about just in terms of various issues that I've been thinking about. You know, and, and one is about looking at how society changes, which if you want to change society, you have to look at what's actually going on around us. And one fact I find quite startling is in the next few years, it's predicted there'll be more self-employed people than public sector workers in, in, in Britain. Now, the government will say, ah, this is evidence of an entrepreneurial revolution sweeping this nation, a nation of budding Alan Shuggins, I think, once and off. But the point, actually, with that is, you know, lots of people, if you talk to self-employed people, often, I'm sure, people in this room, people who often value their independence, who wouldn't in a country where bosses often have so much power over the lives of their workforce, but they do not like the insecurity. And what's happened since the crash happened, a big surge of self-employed people, is the newly self-employed, often people whose income is low and precarious, who don't know from week to week, you know, what, what, how much work they're going to get. Again, they don't have paid sick leave or paid uh, maternity leave. They can't get loans from banks. Uh, they can't get mortgages often. They suffer from poor infrastructure. They're chasing invoices all the time. These are things we can talk about. Those of us who want a different society. People often, myself, like people like myself, haven't spoken to you. But we can, because we need to build a broad coalition. And that means, in terms of building that coalition, you know, what makes people like me most passionate is obviously those who are struggling the most in society, whether it be people who are unemployed or disabled or people who are refugees. And no movement that wants to change society should obviously do anything other than champion people who desperately need a different sort of society. But we can build a coalition because, you know, that includes people in the middle because, you know, if you're in the middle of British society and the old middle England, it was this idea of five cars and 20 homes or whatever, or, you know, people at least anyway, and often they were talking about the top 15 percent. The median income in Britain is 27,000 if you're full time workers, not a lot of money. That means half the population earn less. And these are people often life is often difficult and becoming more insecure and they're worried about the future of their kids. And that's what we need to talk about. We need to build that broad coalition. Another point, age. Now, in the last general election, the Conservatives only had a lead amongst people over the age of 44. You often get young people in big urban centres and they're like, but I didn't meet anyone who voted Conservative. Where are they? (laughs) And that's obviously because younger people in the last general election, those who voted massively voted... For Labour, I had a 17-point lead amongst the Conservatives, uh, amongst 18 to 25-year-olds, but only 42% voted. Amongst over 65s, the Conservatives had a big lead, 20-point lead nearly, but nearly 8 out of 10 voted. Now, obviously, what we need partly to do is inspire young people. And I often go to schools and sixth forms and still look like the youngest person in the room, but when I do go, what I find is these people, you know, apathy gets bandied around, doesn't it? That word apathy. But it's not true. It's resignation, that's different. These are young people who often, and when I you know, talk to people and I learn often more doing that than anything else, is they are so passionate about issues that affect them and their friends and their communities and their country and their future. And they have hopes and dreams and fears and insecurities. And they frankly are pretty pessimistic as things stand. And the polling on that is not good, but they don't connect their everyday problems and hopes and dreams with politics. Politics is so abstract and divorced from everyday life, full of people who don't communicate and speak like them. So partly that means doing politics in a different way. And one thing that inspires me is groups like Reclaim um, in Manchester, which is a group which is bringing together young working class people from local estates in Manchester, the sorts of people completely airbrushed out of politics, totally ignored or feel ignored uh, by the people who run this country. And they've, it's run by people from similar backgrounds. And they bring them together and give them confidence, which often is what it is about. They draw up their own manifestos with priorities of how they want the world to be and what they'd like for their own futures. And another example, after the riots which swept England back in 2011, uh, in Tottenham, where they began, a guy I know, a youth community worker called Simeon Brown, he, he launched, what he did is he, he got together these local football games and people came and kicked a ball around and then they, they brought community leaders and politicians to speak to those young people who turned up. And it was about engaging people in a completely different way. And that is something we need to learn from those people. And Labour has any sense. It's those kind of groups and and, and youth community leaders that have to be the absolute heart of actually learning about how we inspire young people. But the other point is we live in an ageing society where we will increasingly have uh, more and more people living longer, uh, which is great. But what that means is people like me have to have more things to say to older people because all too often that's been monopolised by the Conservatives. But there's loads we can talk about. We still have some of the highest levels of pensioner poverty in the Western world, where we have this appalling lack of social care, that people in their older age, having worked all their lives and kept this country ticking day after day through their hard graft, are denied a comfortable retirement. that's unacceptable, and we should be talking loudly about a national care service to cater for them and making all the people realise that people who believe in a more just society aren't rooted in their lives and experiences. And other points, and often people like me, you know, it seems often all we have is gloom and misery. And I I don't often quote Ronald Reagan, obviously, but what he did... I mean, his politics were all about, in my opinion, you know, we talk about people now supporting Donald Trump. Many of them are hurting precisely because of the legacy of Reaganism, because their wages have been falling or stagnating ever since because of the policies he championed from the late 70s onwards. But he always wrapped his politics in an optimism. Mourning in America, that's what he always said. And often people like myself just seem defensive. Stop this, stop that, stop the cut, stop privatization, stop the world, I want to get off. Rather than talking in a hopeful, a hopeful vision of the sort of society that together we could build, run in the interests of the majority rather than the tiny elite that we have at the moment. And you know, in terms of that, you know, partly it's in terms of economics, and one of the things Labour's doing at the moment that's been a bit lost in all the noise, is they set up a council of economic advisers bringing together lots of economists who reject the dominant kind of econo- uh, you know, economics of our age. Uh, and they're often quite fragmented, but they're brought together. People like uh, Joseph Stiglitz, a Nobel Prize winning economist. Thomas Piketty, the French um, economist. Uh, Professor Mariano Mazzucato, an Italian economist. And the idea is to bring them together to come up with a coherent alternative that can be communicated then in a way that people can understand. And that's partly one of the absolute key issues that we need to talk about and partly that's looking learning from other countries what works in different countries so for example in Germany um, what they've done is instead of what we did here which is let industries go to the wall don't replace them if industries fall that's the market at work you know we don't pick winners or losers as the state but Germany did something different which was to say actually what we'll do is we'll strategically support the industries of the future So if some industries go, we will support and make sure other industries fill that vacuum. An industrial strategy, as it's called. And one of the things they did is focus on renewable energy because climate change is an existential crisis. But instead of just looking at it as a horrible threat to humanity, they saw it as an opportunity as well. That they supported and invested in renewable industries that have created hundreds of thousands of jobs, disproportionately for younger people, skilled, decent, well-paid jobs with dignity that people can be proud of, backed up with apprenticeships, with far less youth unemployment or underemployment than that which scars our own society. That's what we should be learning from. Now, in terms of another point, which I think is really critical, or something that I've, you know, people like myself often uncomfortable talking about. Now, when Jamie Corbyn became leader of the Labour Party, the Conservatives responded in a very restrained and calm, reasoned way. They said Labour was now a threat to national security, economic security, and the security of your families. Now, the thing is, we laugh here, we laugh here, and people laughed on social media, but it works out there with a lot of people, and it's toxic. Now, it's this idea that's always been promoted by those who defend the way things are, which is that if you want to change things, then you hate your own country, that you're unpatriotic. And I think we can turn that whole argument on its head. Because what is more patriotic than wanting to rid your country of injustice? What's more patriotic than wanting to build a society running the interests of the majority? What's more patriotic than wanting to defend the rights and freedoms that our ancestors fought for at such cost and such sacrifice? And what is patriotic about undermining great British institutions that people love like our National Health Service and the BBC? What's patriotic about making the majority pay for things which those at the top are responsible for? What is patriotic about leaving hundreds of thousands of people in one of the richest countries that has ever existed dependent on charities to feed themselves? We can take that argument and turn it on its head. And these are just a few ideas, because I wanted to have a discussion, about actually how we change the way we talk and communicate. And I'm still on this journey, part of all doing all these discussions, is to learn and, and to share experiences and thoughts. But I genuinely think we can build a broad coalition, and communicate in a different way. And to wrap up on all that, this is a really important point. The way we get change, and I say this all the time, so I'd make no apologies for beating, but it's absolutely true. The way we get change is not the goodwill and charity of the powerful. People did not wake up one day and think, oh, I'm feeling generous, I'll give women the vote for a laugh. People (laughs) are to organise, often at great cost and at great sacrifice. And we don't talk about that history enough. Whether it be the Early trade unionists who fought for the dignity um, and, and rights of working people, like the Tolpuddle de Martyrs down in Somerset in the 1830s. And they were uh, agricultural labourers who wanted the right to set up their own trade union to defend their terms and conditions and their wages. And they were transported to Australia in, as retribution. And hundreds of thousands of people took to the streets in one of the first political demonstrations in the history of this nation, demanding their return. Whether it be the Chartists of the 19th century, the first great working-class political movement on earth, who demanded the right of working men to have a say over the running of their own country. Whether it be the Suffragettes who are now lauded as secular saints, they have Hollywood films made about them. But in their time, they were hated and reviled. They were anarchists, they were terrorists. They were arrested and locked up in prisons with tubes forced down their noses. Whether it be those who fought for the welfare state, or the National Health Service, all in the teeth of what seemed like determined and overwhelming opposition from the powerful. Whether it be those who fought racism and sexism and homophobia, who were battened by police officers, who were spat at in the streets. We stand on the shoulders of giants, of course. People who fight for change are still, of course, being attacked and persecuted, and that's the point. Because we stand on the shoulders of giants. Everything we have all the rights and freedoms not given to us as acts of charity, but won, including by people, no doubt, in this room, by people's mothers, fathers, grandmothers, grandfathers, and their ancestors before them. And we owe it to them. We owe it to our ancestors to not just defend the rights and freedoms that they fought for at such cost and such sacrifice, (coughs) sometimes allowing those rights and freedoms to be eroded and undermined and uh, over completely attacked, often without even a whimper. But also... To keep fighting to build a different sort of society. And the reason I bring up people who, even to this day, are attacked and marginalised and demonised and humiliated is not just dewy-eyed nostalgia because it's the right thing to do. To remember what people did when they won the rights and freedoms that all of us enjoy, many of them under attack. But it's to remind us that change is not easy. You know, it's not victory, success, victory, success. It's often defeat and setback and defeat and setback and then victory. And often when these people were organising and struggling, it felt like the whole world was against them. And it was lonely and bitter and hard. And they often faced far worse persecution, thankfully, than we face today. People were tortured and killed. And it reminds us that change is possible if people have determination and resilience and courage. And that's a tradition that is all too often forgotten, but we have to reclaim it. We have to honor that tradition by continuing it. And that means instead of accepting injustice as being like the weather, that instead we all make a commitment that in the coming years, because people in this room will have children who will ask them that when the bank has plunged us into disaster, what did you do? What did you do to confront injustice? And you better have a good answer. So look, all of us at this time have a huge contribution to make. We all become leaders. And that means whatever we do, join a political party, a single issue group, a trade union, that we do something, however limited, however few many hours uh, every month, that is a huge contribution to building a movement that stands in that great tradition that all of us should be honouring. So show that same determination, that same courage, that same resilience. And if we do, we will build a society, not run as a racket, as a playground for a tiny elite of tax dodgers and poverty-paying bosses and bankers, but a society instead running the interests of the vast majority, the real wealth creators, working people. But it's up to every single person in this room. Thank you for listening to this Institute of Art and Ideas podcast. If you enjoyed this debate
0: and want to carry on the discussion, visit IAI.tv. Remember to subscribe and review on iTunes.